Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from John 1, 9 through 13. Please read with me the verses in bold. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Good morning. It's a little bummer. Good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thankful. I will also admit I was enthralled. I think that's the right word. Uh, mesmerized by the, uh, the talent that's up here. I know that there's talent in the seats as well. Uh, I know there's talents up here, and I just want to confess that I do not have that kind of talent, but I also wanted to say that I am, I'm not sure if you know, I am an excellent whistler. <laughs> I thought I'd just put that out there. <laughs> Maybe I might get invited next time up to the stage. <clears throat> Again, I'm Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thankful that we're worshiping here on this third Sunday of Advent. Let's, let's pray. Let's come to our Lord together and and ask for his, uh, for his enlightening, uh, that he would come and, and show us what he needs to show us. God, you appeared nearly 2,000 years ago, and you came to us as a little baby born in a manger. But Lord, it's not the first time you came. Lord, you've always been there. God, you've been there from the very beginning of time. Lord, you tell us in your word that in the beginning was the word. God, we thank you that you are, uh, Jesus, you are not the created one, but you are a creator and the molder and, and shaper of our hearts. And so, God, as we come and, and hear your word, God, I pray that you would teach us about who you are and what you did. I pray that you would use me as a mouthpiece that only you would be heard. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine a professional athlete who has played for one team his whole life. He has become a fan favorite. He is dearly loved in the city in which he has played for the entirety of his career, and then he suddenly gets traded to a different team. How will he be received when he comes and plays now for his former team? Will he be well received? Will there be a standing ovation, a warm welcome, a tribute at his homecoming? Now, I don't want to just give up uh, which team I follow. I, uh, I know I would get booed right off the stage. <laughs> but uh, a former player, uh, of my favorite team, came back to play in that former stadium and with a long tribute. And I, I know I'm speaking in, in vague terms, and that's on purpose, that there's no bananas thrown uh, this way. But when a player comes back to face his former team, how will he be received? 
Or how about a soldier who is whisked off to deployment overseas? He or she has served their country well for many dropped off in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a conflict or a war. They've fought well, endured well, and then comes home to family and friends. Will they be recognized and acknowledged by the country they loved and have served so faithfully? Will they be received, well-received? Will there be a warm welcome? Well, before I get to the rest of the passage here, uh, in the words of the musician Joan Osborne, not sure if she identifies as a Christian, she sings a song, What If God Was One of Us? If God had a name, what would it be, and would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? If God visited this planet, the one he created, would he be well-received? Perhaps a warm welcome, a party and a parade in his honor, with much fanfare, the sounding of the trumpets to let everyone know that the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, was making an appearance. The opening statements of the Gospel of John are mind-blowing. The gospel writer describes the one who was in the beginning, the one through whom all things were made, the one who is light and life was coming into the world. The creator, in some weird sense, becoming creation, the one who is infinite, confining himself to a place and time and history and entering as a helpless little baby. The true light, as John describes, that the darkness cannot overcome was coming in flesh and blood. The true light that would dispel the darkness of sin and death was visiting the planets and appearing in person. And John says in John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. No, they did not have marquees or advertisement or direct mailers or or banners uh, trailing planes to announce the arrival of Jesus, but they had been amply notified. God had told his people many times and in many ways through patriarchs and prophets the foretelling of his coming. You see, because every book and every chapter of every page in the Old Testament testifies to this great truth. Jesus is coming. Written throughout the Old Testament, all of the chapters of every book of the Old Testament is this profound truth that Jesus is coming. That's the whole theme of the Old Testament and that God would one day send the Messiah to earth to dwell with his people and deliver them. 
And the opening lines of this prologue in the first chapter of the Gospel of John is fascinating, I think, because uh, for two reasons. First, the one who made the world or the one through whom the whole world was made was coming into the world. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And second, when he came, as profound as the first, nobody recognized him. In verse 10, John writes, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Eugene Peterson, you may know him, a theologian and and writer, uh, he uh, took liberties to, to paraphrase, paraphrase the, uh, the Old and New Testaments. And again, in John chapter 1, this is how he translates it. He says, he was in the world, the world was there through him, and yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. Some have called this the saddest verse in all of the scriptures. The greatest of tragedies, that he would come into his own or came to his own and his people would not receive him. An Old Testament passage written about 700 years before the coming of Christ in the book of Isaiah 53, chapter 53, verse 3, the prophet speaking of our Lord Jesus, of course, in a prophetic sense says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The expression we find in John's gospel, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The word his own that we see used twice here in the exact, is the exact expression used at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is there hanging on the cross, and again, he's there, uh, there's uh, John, his beloved disciple, and there is Mary, his mother. And again, uh, this expression is used of the beloved disciple when in response to Jesus' words from the cross, again, here is uh, this, this uh, conversation that's happening from the cross. Jesus looks at John and says, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus looks at Mary, his mother, and said, behold your son, and looks at John the apostle and says, um, looks at John the apostle and says, behold your mother. And the writer goes on, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. You may remember that uh, context, but again, uh, John is describing this. Again, he uses this, this expression both in the very beginning of the gospel of John and at the very end of his gospel, this exact same term, his own, to express something of significance. Again, in that expression, uh, into his home is the exact expression that is used in John chapter 1. It literally means into his own. So we can translate John's words, he went home. So in verse 11, perhaps we could translate it this way. And Jesus came home. And his own people, his own family did not receive him. And thus, the saddest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus went home, and yet at his own home, he wasn't received. 
He went to God's own people, to those whom he had shown his constant love and unwavering affection. He went to those who had been delivered by the Lord during the times of the Exodus. Remember that? From Egypt. And again, the return of the exiles from Babylon. These were people who might be expected to know something of the ways of God. You might imagine someone coming home at the end of a long work day, worn out by the tasks of the day, glad to be finished with work and looking forward to spending time with family, to hear from his children, welcome home, dad. And by the way, uh, any envious families out there, I get that every single day. But in the words of Robert Frost, in the death of the higher man, again, if you're familiar with any of his writings, uh, he writes this, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. (laughs) (laughs) And here is Jesus. The scriptures tell us he came to his own. He came to his home. And yet... His home was shut out, or he was shut out from his own home. In the words, uh, Jesus, or in the words of uh, John chapter 1, again, Jesus went home. He did not go, again, I think this is fascinating, again, he did not go to strangers, to a stranger's home, to a foreign land. I mean, you can just imagine, again, Jesus being born among the Greeks, or perhaps Jesus being born among the Romans, the barbarians, Jesus being born, I would love this if he was born in a Korean family. You know, he'd be, and I hate to stereotype, but he'd be great at math and play the violin well and the piano well. But Jesus was not born to strangers. He did not go to a stranger's home or born in a foreign land. He, again, I just got to emphasize this He came to his own family. Jesus went home. And you would think if he was born to Romans or the Greeks, and perhaps, again, the reception might have been different, or at least it would have been understood if he was not well-received. But the Bible tells us he went to his own. He went to his own home. And the writers of the New Testament found the rejection by Jesus of Jesus by the Jews extremely difficult to comprehend. Again, here's a Jew born to Jewish, uh, Jewish parents, to Joseph and Mary, and yet to his Jewish family. He wasn't well received. And again, if you think about the history of the Jews, the way God carried them, and again, the expression that the Old Testament writers use of, of the Israelites, again, how God carried them on eagles' wings. And how God classified the Jews as the, the firstborn the first fruits. And how over and over again through the Old Testament, again, the people of God failed God. And they chose to follow the ways of of the foreign gods, of their foreign captors. And yet even then, God loved them and forgave them and would redeem them. As I said, the Old Testament is filled, every book and every chapter 
of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures talks about a Jesus who, who's coming, a Messiah who would come and deliver his people, even though they would reject him. He would come and deliver them. Even at times when this, they would disobey the Lord, he would remain faithful to them. And this is the story of the Old Testament of a faithful God, a God who doesn't relent, a God who does not ever become unfaithful because that goes against the very nature of who he is, a God who loves his people, a, a God who, who pursues them. And this is the story, the story of the Old Testament. And again, some writers would use illustrations like, like the harlot or the prostitute again and describes Israel and the people of, of God as those who would be unfaithful and would choose the other, other, uh, other gods. And yet God still chooses them. And so you can understand as, as the New Testament writers, the gospel writers especially of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how they can be appalled and confused. And find it extremely difficult to comprehend, unfathomable, that Jesus, who was born a Jew, would be rejected by his own people. John, I think, lays out for us uh, very clearly, it's again a very short passage in verses 9 through 13, a very short passage, gives us really two choices. In verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Bible makes it very clear there are two choices. There is either rejection, and the Bible is pretty clear that it isn't just indifference or ignorance when John says the world did not know him. It wasn't that the world did not know about him. It was that, and it wasn't that the world could not know him, but the scripture is very clear. Again, this, this idea of, of knowing was an experiential knowledge, a relational knowledge of, of God. Yes, I know all sorts of people. I know LeBron James, oh, gave away my favorite team. <clears throat> I've never met him or know him in that way. He's going to throw bananas at me. But there's a difference between a, an intellectual knowledge of who God is and there's a relational aspect of who God is. You see, because between us and eternal life, the great obstacle or maybe the free access is the word to know. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus? To know is more than just an intellectual uh, uh, consent or a sense or a belief that he exists, but instead it's a relationship with Jesus and an understanding of who he is and what he did and why Jesus would come unto his own. And John makes it clear that we do not have to choose, uh, we do not have to choose rejection because there's always a reception. In verse 12, 
John writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, although the tragedy of rejection happened and happens and must be mentioned, my friends, this is not the theme of John's gospel. It is an inevitable fact that people will reject him, even his own, and so John goes on immediately to say, but to all who did receive them, who believed in his name. John is writing about, a, about God's gracious gift to his children, to his own. Long ago, there ruled in Persia a wise and good king. He loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships. He often he dressed in the clothes of a working man or a beggar. He went to the homes of the poor. No one whom he visited thought he was their ruler. And so one time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar, and he ate the coarse food the poor man ate. He spoke cheerful and kind words to him, and then he left. Later, he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity by saying, I am your king. The king thought the man would surely ask for some gift or favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food, coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts. But to me, you have given me yourself. The one who comes, the one who came, the one who came to understand uh, your struggles and mine, your hardships and mine, Jesus gives us himself. And John 1, 12 through 13 offers a very simple description of what it means to become a child of God. He uses a familiar term, children. If we're talking about his own, we're talking about what it means to belong to the family of God. The Bible makes, the Bible makes it very clear that God is the one who gives the right to become children of God. The word right means honor or privilege. The right to become children of God is adoption language. There's an adoption taking place here. The Westminster Catechism, the summary that we'll often use of the Christian faith here at Grace Sacramento and in our denomination says, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons and then we add daughters of God. So three things you see here. You see God's grace, God's free grace. You see God's family. And then you see God's favor. Again, it's the admission of that person into the family of God, the one who has received him. Verse 12 sets two conditions, receiving Jesus and believing Jesus. But to all who receive him would believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, the moment you receive Christ into your life, God gives you the honor of becoming a member of his family. Not everyone is a child of God. Yes, all are created by God. Yes, all have inherent worth. Yes, all are created in the image of God. But not everyone is a child of God. God only gives the privilege of being his children to those who by personal faith receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You see, to receive Christ is the opposite of not knowing him and rejecting him. It means to welcome him into your life. And John further defines it as believing in his name. His name refers to all that Jesus is and his person, what he has done, 
as the eternal word made flesh. It refers to all that he did by dying on the cross as a substitute for your sins and mine. Believing his name means that you stop relying on our, we rely on our own merits or our own works as a way of approaching God, and instead we rely totally on what Jesus did for us on the cross. It means that when we stand before God, we rely on him for hope, the hope for heaven, that not by our good works, but rather that Jesus died for our sins and that you are trusting him alone. You see, we receive Christ when we believe in him. I can vividly recall when I was in seventh grade, I prayed that very simple prayer. Jesus, if you're real, come into my heart. There's no magic in those words, my friends. Nothing about saying those exact words. But it's believing that Jesus, the one who was made flesh, he became like you and me with with real flesh and blood and bone. And this Jesus, who came 2,000 years ago, loves you and me and desires eternal life and desires an eternity where we'll spend with him in his presence. That despite my sins and my rebellion and my rejection of him at times, that, that God loves me and he saved me, not by the will of man, not by the will of the flesh, not because I was born into a good family, but simply because it's the work of God. This unspeakable gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who came. There are prompts that we put up every week, and I'm going to put that on a screen here, but Again, these prayer prompts. Again, if you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't know if I believe all that. Maybe you're searching for the truth. Maybe this is the prayer that you'll pray. Lord Jesus, you claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. And as I search for spiritual truth, please guide me and teach me and open to me the life you promise. Or perhaps, again, as you sit here, you're convinced that that's probably you. I want to. There's a prayer for belief. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Trusting in God's love and in your death and resurrection on my behalf, I ask you to forgive me, merciful Lord, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Relying upon your grace, I promise to confess you publicly before others, to serve you daily, and to walk in your way. Or some of you might have been walking with Jesus a long time. And maybe we're called to a prayer of commitment. Lord Jesus, you called your disciples to be baptized and follow your commandments. Grant that I may take the necessary steps to become one with you and with your church and to live in the fullness of your spirit. We'll have opportunities to pray. Um, maybe you can take a, a moment to pray. And a part of uh, the, the table that we practice, again, the table that we come to every week, again, is where we stand before God. Do we reject him? Or do we receive him? Is there a rejection or a reception of, of who he is? And we, we pray these prayers as a way of saying, God, open my eyes so that when I come, I, I know. I know where I stand as an adopted child of God.
I have been increasingly falling, uh, increasingly more and more falling in love with a, a writer named uh, Russell Moore. Uh, he wrote a book called Adopted for Life, and he makes this comment. He says, there's no such thing as adopted children. I kind of, if you can hold on for a second. He says, there are no such thing as adopted children. There are only children who are adopted. In a biblical understanding, adopted is a past tense verb, not an adjective. So once someone has been adopted into the family, that person is part of the family with everything that means. That's what we are like as we are adopted by our Heavenly Father in Christ. We are part of His family and receive all that that means, all the privileges and all the blessings and the wonders that come to us as we consider that. We are not adopted children. We are children of God. I love the way that the, again, as I mentioned before, uh, two weeks ago, Genesis 1 begins the same way as well as, as, well as the Gospel of John and the, and the same with the epistle in 1 John chapter 1. Again, it, it all starts the same way in the beginning. And then when you get to the third chapter in 1 John, again, here's this beautiful description. Again, God is making, uh, he's creating an identity for his people and saying, uh, how great the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. 